0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, starting with verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Blessed, someone who has been blessed by God. Happiness that's based on inner reality. Objective happiness as opposed to subjective happiness. It's kind of like being loved by someone. You are loved by that person whether you happen to feel like it or not. Objective happiness that is not based on circumstances. One of the main things that Jesus is teaching us in this chapter is the importance of what a person is like on the inside. And what a person is like on the inside will show itself even though some people are able to or think that they are able to hide it fairly well. This is not to say that what we do on the outside is not important. It is vitally important but what we do or not do is not all that there is. For example, it is not just important that we do not murder people. It is also vitally important that we do not become so angry with people that we wish that we were in a position to murder them. Jesus never tells us that the Ten Commandments are not vitally important. They are vitally important. The Ten Commandments have been given to us to point us to Jesus. Secondly, the Ten Commandments have been given to us as a measuring stick so that we can see how well we are responding to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, the Ten Commandments are a foundation for the laws for any society, any group of people, any jurisdiction. The Ten Commandments are vitally important, but being sinners, it is tempting to just look at our outward selves, our outward acts, without examining our inward desires. Jesus starts looking at the inner life of the Christian as he starts teaching about the Beatitudes in verse 3, of Matthew chapter 5. But once again, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poverty has nothing to do with a person's wealth or the lack thereof. No matter what a person's personal financial situation is in life, without Jesus Christ, he or she is poverty stricken, spiritually speaking. That person has nothing. So why is someone who is called poverty-stricken also described as being blessed? What are, what we are looking at here is someone who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizes his or her pers- his or her spiritual poverty. Without Jesus, that person is doomed. And that person has come to the conclusion that, spiritually speaking, he or she has absolutely nothing to offer. Nothing. But due to the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, that person is rich. Theirs is the kingdom of God. These blessed people are truly blessed. The church in Laodicea looked at themselves as being rich, and yet they were not rich where it really counted. The church in Smyrna may have looked at themselves as being poor, but in reality, they were spiritually rich. That should turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Revelation 2, verses 8 and 9. And then we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Revelation 2, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now let's compare that to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Starting with verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my heavenly father in his throne. So the church of Laodicea looked at themselves as being rich. And yet they were not rich were it really counted. The church in Smyrna, on the other hand, may have looked at themselves as being poor. But in reality, they were spiritually rich. There's nothing wrong in and of itself in being financially rich. And there is nothing in and of itself be good about being financially poor. But unless people come to the place where they recognize their spiritual poverty, these people are truly poor. And not only has the Christian come to the place of recognizing his or her pro- poverty, this recognition must never be forgotten, for it never changes. Without Jesus, all people are spiritually poverty-stricken. Do you look at yourself as being, in and of yourself, truly helpless? Do you recognize your spiritual poverty without Jesus? There are many types of churches that are out there that we can attend. I'm going to place them into five categories when it comes to how we might look at ourselves. Number one, there's the I'm okay, you're okay church. You're okay. Now, don't you feel so much better about yourself? Number two, secondly, there's the little engine that could church. You just need some encouragement to think that you can And with work and perseverance, you can do whatever you put your mind to. The third kind of church, the third is the you-need-some-help church. I might call that the touched-by-an-angel church. You need help from a higher power, but you'll be just fine. Fourthly, the fourth church is the you-need-a-lot-of-help church. You-need-a-lot-of-help from Jesus, since you are a sinner. You are sick and need Jesus to help you to become well. You need Jesus to be your co-pilot. Number five, the fifth church is what I would call the Reformed Church. Its message is one that is not terribly popular. You are dead in your sins, and you have nothing at all to offer God. You are totally helpless, and you are totally not okay. Your righteousness is filthy, and without God doing it all, you cannot be changed. Without Jesus, you are going to hell. All the good effort in the world and all the positive self-talk in the world will not keep you out of hell. Unless the Holy Spirit changes you, you are doomed. Your effort to get yourself out of the situation results in zero. meritorious attainment. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that your salvation will be 100% God and 0% you. Jesus will not be your co-pilot because you never have been, nor will you ever be issued a pilot's license, spiritually speaking. Do not insult Jesus by saying, that you are his equal in any way, shape, or form. You are not his co-anything. This kind of church is far from perfect since it's filled with sinners, but it strives to speak the truth to its people and the world around it. Without Jesus, you are spiritually poverty-stricken. You have No more to offer Jesus, as far as your salvation is concerned, than Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Nero, Saddam Hussein, or any other evil leader of any nation or organization. But if you are a Christian, you are the privileged recipient of God's favor you recognize that your sins are a stench in the nostrils of God and that you that even your most righteous acts performed in and of yourself are like the filthiest of dirty rotten rags but when God the Father looks at you he sees Jesus this should lead to an objective happiness that no person or no situation in life shall take away. And we see that Christians, being poor in spirit, are told that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you are a Christian, you are part of the kingdom now, and you will be part of the kingdom in its improved state forever. That's not so bad, is it? Think about this. You have nothing to offer the triune God. Your sins are foul and rotten before God and you are totally without excuse. The triune God saves you. You are presently part of the kingdom and you will always be part of the kingdom. Jesus points out time and time again the importance of what is going on in the inner man. This Blessedness, this inner objective happiness is always there, no matter what the circumstances of the person's life may be, as opposed to subjective happiness that is often so, that's so often based on circumstances. Now, let me ask you a question. If you are a Christian who recognizes your spiritual poverty without Christ, and you are truly grateful and happy due to what Christ has done and is doing for you, what should be your emotional state when faced with your sin? And we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, in verse 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit might be looked at as being a how should we Think, how should we then think? Blessed are those who mourn, as we see in verse 4, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they who mourn, might be looked at as being, how should we then feel? How should we then think we are spiritually poverty-stricken without Jesus, we are poor in spirit. How should we then think we have and are offending a holy trinity with our, with our sins, and thus we mourn over our sins. Blessed are those who mourn. The way that we think does affa- affect the way that we feel. Verse 4 again, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. If a person has supernaturally come to the recognition of his or her spiritual poverty without Jesus that that we've been looking at, it would only seem logical to me that the person, when recognizing how he or she has offended the Holy Trinity, would internally, and perhaps even externally, weep due to what has been done or not done. The sin that's been committed or the sin that's committed by not doing what a person should be doing. We are not looking here at mourning as being a good thing in and of itself any more than we just looked at financial poverty as being a good thing in and of itself. The recognition of inner poverty on the part of the Christian should lead to mourning, not only at the part of sal- at the point of salvation, but throughout the Christian's life as well. And this mourning on the part of the Christian is not a hopeless mourning. It is not a Judas Iscariot kind of mourning. The truly repentant Christian who is mourning over personal sins, good news, shall be comforted. This recognition of spiritual poverty and mourning over sin will surely be made manifest, made known, in the lives of Christians who take sin and confession of sin super seriously. They will not just be going through the motions, but they will be giving proof of their salvation and their positive response to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this inward life does not just stay inward, but results in a godly life outwardly. Please turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And this is Isaiah the prophet speaking, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How should we think about our sin and who we are without Jesus? How should we feel about our sin? And not just our own sins, but the sins of others as well. Now I'd ask that you turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 6, which takes place after David's sin with Bathsheba. Not just takes place after the sin with Bathsheba and after the murder of Bathsheba's husband, but it takes place months afterwards when David has been confronted with his sin and he's truly repented. Psalm 32, starting with verse 1. We read that this is a Psalm of David, a masculine. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputed not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old, through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moistures turned into the drought of summer. Siva. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Siva. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. And then I'd ask that you turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, where we read that it's to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Starting with verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice." Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good In thy good pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem, then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David was not just concerned about his own sin and the need for his own confession he was also concerned about the sins of others. Mourning over our sins is the biblically appropriate emotional response to the recognition of who we are in and of ourselves as we stand before a holy God. But it is also important to realize that mourning over the sins of others who stand before a holy God is expected of us as well. Mourning over our own sins primarily, but also mourning over the sins of others. Mourning over our own sins and responding in a biblical manner is important as a witness to others, whether it be to the saved or to the unsaved. Mourning over our own sins cannot be separated from the gospel have you ever come to the realization that you sinned against someone years ago and that you need to do something about it you need to do the right thing you need to do the God glorifying gospel centered right thing that realization that you need to make things right after all these years can be one of the most awful feelings in the whole world And since there is no statute of limitations when it comes to people whom we have hurt, we need to do something about it. We need to do the right thing. The God-glorifying, gospel-centered thing. And you might be thinking, oh, how I wish that I had not sinned against that person and in doing so, sinned against God. That's what we should be thinking. Recognition of our sin and the emotional response to that recognition. Recognition of our sins and the emotional appropriate response to that recognition. Pain. Mourning. You know that you have asked God for forgiveness, but you know that true repentance involves making things right with the person who you have sinned against. You have that next step to take, and it's a huge step. You go to that person, confess, ask for forgiveness, and you do all that you can to make it right. And a comforting feeling that is beyond description comes upon you, comes over you. It's one of the best feelings in the entire world. It is wonderful. Comfort for the Christian who truly mourns over his or her sins and lives out that mourning in every area of his or her life. And not only will the Christian be comforted in this world, but for eternity as well. Tears wiped from our eyes by Jesus himself. How should we think about ourselves if we are Christians? truly knowing that without Jesus we are totally without hope, doomed to eternity in hell, and have nothing to offer as far as our salvation is concerned, and recognizing that our sins are a stench in the nostrils of God, and that even our most righteous acts performed in and of ourselves are like the filthiest of of dirty rotten rags, That being true, how should Christians then feel? Mourning over our own sins, especially, and the sins of others as well. How we think affects how we feel, and how we feel affects the way that we act. Now, if we are thinking and feeling about our sins in the way that we should, Shouldn't that affect our attitudes towards spreading the good news by both our words and our actions? There has been a great debate through the years in the church concerning whether the gospel should be primarily spread by our godly lifestyles or by our godly message of the good news. Let me in let me let, let me let you in in a little secret. The gospel announced and the gospel lived are both required by Scripture. God expects both. If you are a Christian who recognizes who you are in Jesus, your spiritual poverty without Jesus, and responds biblically by mourning over your sins internally and perhaps externally as well, and are biblically concerned about the sins of others, won't you have a love for spreading the gospel as well as living the gospel? How we think affects how we feel, and how we feel affects how we act. A Christian's recognition of his or her spiritual poverty leads to to his or her, mourning over personal sins, which will then lead to action. Biblical thinking, biblical feeling, biblical action, which leads to the spread of the gospel message throughout the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that In this truth, that we are seeing that how we feel and how we think affects the way that we act, and that we are, when we're having the right feelings and the right and we are thinking correctly, that that should lead to godly actions. So, if we're thinking. About ourselves in the way that we should, and feeling about our sins in the way that we should, and feeling what we should be feeling concerning what Jesus has done for us, that this will result in godly actions. That you can't just separate these things, well, I'll do one or the other, but they all come together. And then when we are acting the way that we should, that that also affects how we think and how we feel, all tied together. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who does tie all of this together. For in and of ourselves, we are totally unable to do that. We praise you and thank you for all that you have done for your people. And if there be anyone who is listening or as we look at, throughout the whole world that has not given their life to Jesus that your Holy Spirit would change that person change those people change them supernaturally so that they would be able to enjoy the salvation that so many other people have enjoyed throughout the ages including now in Jesus name, Amen